0: Okay, you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base.
1: Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orpit. And I'm Will Barry. And today we are live again on site at the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference, and we just listened to a lecture given by the famous, maybe infamous, Dr. Gene Moore, who quite literally has written the book on trauma surgery. So, Dr. Moore, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. So, you just gave us a lecture about Reboa. First and foremost, what is Reboa?
2: Reboa is resuscitative endovascular the occlusion of the aorta. And basically, it's a device that you usually introduce to the femoral artery and advance the balloon into the aorta and inflate the balloon to occlude the aorta. There are two dominant zones that are used. So-called zone one is the segment of the aorta above the diaphragm. And the idea of the zone one occlusion is to not only resuscitate the patient, but also reduce bleeding from abdominal structures, particularly vascular and liver. The Zone 3 is a shorter landing zone and is between the renal arteries and the iliac bifurcation. Its dominant use is for uh, pelvic fracture or hemorrhage. Once again, the balloon is inflated in this area, but unlike the Zone 1, there are very few complications from occlusion in this area. So we have a longer time to use Zone 3, whereas in Zone 1, most people believe 30 minutes is sort of the Maximum time that can be used safely. And why is that? Well, it's the warm ischemic tolerance of the viscera, particularly the gut, has long been recognized to be 30 minutes. In fact, when we used to repair thoracic aortic tears, we always put patients on left heart bypass because we're concerned with clamping the aorta. Although some we could get done within 30 minutes, most of them took a little longer. And we found that with that prolonged ischemic time, we had necrosis of the gut and the liver and had kidney failure.
1: And I'm assuming that there is a zone two between zone one and zone three, but you you skipped over that. Why don't we blow it up there?
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. Zone two is re- literally the area between zone one and zone three, starting at the celiac axis down to the renal arteries. But there's no purpose in that because then all you do in zone two basically would be to render the kidneys ischemic. So zone two is so-called no man's land. You don't want to have the roboa in that area because you don't want to add injury to the kidneys.
0: Dr. Moore, you spoke quite a bit in your presentation about the research that's been ongoing in the use of roboa in trauma patients. As a paramedic, if I brought you a sick trauma patient prior to your use of roboa, what was your management? How would you take care of them?
2: Well, the dominant role uh, rubella has taken in acute resuscitation is a resuscitative thoracotomy with clamping of the order with a clamp. So that's primarily where it has replaced that former yeah. procedure. That used to be a tough decision for us because opening someone's chest up who has a quailopathy may lead to a life threatening bleeding from the chest wall. And secondly, placing a clamp in the aorta has its problems as well. You can uh, tear the thoracic intercostals, and you can actually injury the esophagus, and so on. So it's not one of these complications either. So that's the dominant rationale. Although I think once we've had more experience with riboa, we've found that we can now use it, for example, as a bridge to obtain CAT scan. So that was always a dilemma before. You're sitting there with a patient between a pressure of 60, 70. Can we make it to the operating room or can we get a CAT scan? Particularly in somebody with multi-system injury, a motorcyclist that's ejected without a helmet, you know, obviously. We'll worry about everything there. So it's nice to get a CAT scan before we go to the operating room. So that's An increasing role of it, so we may not use a traditional, you know, blood pressure 70. It may be more in the range of 80 in which we put that in, so we give them a little buffer to go to the CT scanner.
1: And what are your indications for placing these in the emergency department?
2: Well, that will vary among trauma surgeons. My particular indications are if a systolic pressure is under 100, we put a standard femoral artery line in. And that's because once that catheter's in the artery, we can now upsize it to a sheath or the wire. So it gives us all the latitude, and that can exchange with the wire is literally 15 seconds. The more uh, serious level then is a systolic pressure less than 90, and that's where you put a sheath in. The sheath for the current robot is a seven French. And while that's not a Norris, it's a sizable catheter that has its own complications. So we like to reserve that for those who have, you know, incipient hemorrhagic shock. And then we use uh, 80 uh, where we put the rubella in. So if their systolic drops below 80, then we put the rubella in.
0: Something that you didn't explicitly say in your presentation, but it sticks out to me is time is of the essence. And I mean, that I think it goes without saying, but it, it, I think part of your presentation was just how you have even laid out the equipment so you can be as efficient as possible can you speak to that in the value of reboa and just in trauma practice in general i think you showed great attention to detail even down to which ultrasound machine you prefer because the controls are more simple
2: exactly well i hope you appreciate it. and those listening to this recognize that we as trauma surgeons greatly value advice you get from the field. And the more detailed the better. If the patient drops pressure to eighty, we'd like to hear about it. Because that heightens our anxiety about getting things ready. But you're absolutely right. That's the reason we have the calls go out so that we're all there as a team and we can talk about if this patient does arrive with a pressure of seventy, you go know, to the emergency medicine team, we'll innovate the patient, we'll put the rebo in, and then we'll sit back and compare notes. So it helps a lot to know what the circumstances are of the patient arriving. And if anyone has a systolic pressure less than 90, then I prepare, like I mentioned today, we have a back table in which we put the sheath and the wire and so on, so that when the patient arrives, we don't have to ask someone for the tray. And in fact, as I tried to recognize the chaos that precludes people really from helping you, you got to be sort of independent in the emergency department. And that's whether you're intubating someone or placing some sutures in a scalp. You know, you just don't have people around to help. There's too many things going on. So we lay that all out in the tray before the patient arrives. And everybody says, well, you're wasting equipment. Well, it's a $75 investment to put that equipment out on that tray. And $75 in a trauma activation, the patient is at threat of Dying from bleeding is a minuscule cost that ultimately we're going to commit to.
1: That's great. And you work in a large urban academic center, but what about the rural centers? Do you see this expanding to them?
2: Well, it has already, in even in Colorado, and in some areas of the country even more aggressively, but I do think there is a clear role for Reboa particularly in areas that are more than three hours from a level one center or receive a lot of recreational injuries that are at risk for these devastating bleeding events. You know, classic being a snowmobile that slams into a tree and has a major pelvic fracture. I think that's an ideal situation for a in a rural hospital. And I know certain hospitals in Colorado are doing it. I'm trying to encourage it and offering training but I do think it'll gain traction there as well over time.
0: And one of the interests you spoke of is from the Department of Defense because of the impact it can have on service members. Can you speak a little bit about how that could change practice in terms of battlefield care?
2: Well, the military anticipates the warfare in the future is gonna be lots more challenging. When we are up against foes that have equipment That's equivalent to ours. We simply are not going to be able to evacuate people out of the war zone. So the DOD is very interested in Reboa as a bridge, and particularly the new partial Reboa, which they are funding our current trial on. So their anticipation this will be placed in that we try to extend the time of delay as much as possible and allow survival. The U.S. Army has medics have placed reboas. The last time I saw a report, I think there were in the order of 25 reboas placed by Army medics. And, of course, that would extend into, well, maybe paramedics ought to be doing it. The flight teams in London have placed reboas, but those are generally emergency positions that go with that flight team. But certainly, that is an area that I think will be expanded into. And I think as we automate access to the artery that doesn't require really the experience to do it, we'll see more field use of rubellas.
1: I want to talk more about this partial occlusion balloon that is being developed and researched currently. But before we talk about that, let's talk about the complications that come from this procedure.
2: Yes, the most feared complication from a reboa. Is damage to the common femoral artery that leads to either thrombosis or an emboli that threatens the leg. And if you look at our learning curve over the last 15 years, every report has described amputations. We've had some on our institution. Now, most of those amputations have come from the very early use of Rebella, and at that time, we're using much cruder equipment. For example, our excess was 11 French, and our catheters weren't nearly as refined as they are now. But that's probably the most feared complication is loss of a leg from a rubella. And what is this new partial
1: occlusion balloon?
2: So a partial balloon is the idea that we can partially deflate the balloon to allow perfusion instead of having complete occlusion. And while you can do that with a sand or it's a compliant balloon. And compliant balloons, as you experiment with balloons for your kids, you recognize that it's hard to sort of gradually reduce the pressure. It's all or nothing all of a sudden. So that's a compliant balloon. And what they're using is a so-called semi-compliant balloon. So it's a stiffer balloon and it has ridges in it so that when you inflate it, it's inflated sequentially. And the important thing is that when you deflate it in a reverse fashion, it decreases very sequentially and you allow the pressure to be modified in a very precise manner.
0: The thought being that instead of fully occluding, you can now almost, your slides called it like a dimmer switch. You can actually control some of the blood flow getting to the distal part, correct?
2: Exactly. And that's not my term, of course. That's, uh, <laughs> prior time. uh, (laughs) But it's pretty descriptive. Uh, I mean, it fundamentally is a dimmer. Just like you adjust your lights in your dining room, you just drop it down a little bit, watch pressure above, watch it below. And parenthetically, the beauty of the new catheter is you can measure pressure above and below the balloon. So while it's somewhat controversy, I'm more concerned about the pressure above the balloon because I like to keep systolic above 90 if I can but if you can measure that distal pressure and you're able to keep that pressure above 90 and your distal pressure is say 50 then you're pretty comfortable you're alleviating any kind of ischemic insult
0: I have one kind of last question you know I've been around Denver Health for about 8 8 or 9 years and I've always appreciated that there was a good sense of adopting certain new technologies that impact patients and then kind of seeing some of uh, the other ones as the maybe the smoke and mirrors that they might be. I was curious in your wealth of experience you've had all these years as a trauma surgeon, how do you suss through some of that? Someone comes to you and says, hey, we've got this new thing called Roboa, will you try it out? What are some of the things that help you stay focused on is this gonna benefit patients or not?
2: Well, I think that really distills down to the rationale for academic trauma centers. While the care rendered to an injured patient may be equivalent across centers, the academic center ought to look at the patient as an example of an injury pattern and how can we improve that care. But you're absolutely right. You're flooded. It's just like the new open access journals that aren't filtered very well. You're flooded with all this information. But if you have a research team and you're studying various parts of trauma to try and improve it, then when someone comes across with a new device, you go, wow, that's exactly what we need for this problem. And of course, hemorrhagic shock and coagulopathy has been a focus of our research for many decades. And when the reboa first came along, it was very engaging. But as you saw, we introduced it gradually. Two people at first and then we send it on to others, but now every trauma surgeon at our institution puts roboas in.
0: Lastly, one ski patroller to another, would you ha. put would you put one in on the ski hill?
2: <laughs> oh, that's a good question. <laughs> As you probably heard, I did crank a patient on steamboat.
0: I did hear about that. A while ago. Yeah.
2: That was a long time ago. <laughs> but it's a little easier than putting put a robo in. <laughs> I suppose you're stuck in the back malls with a blizzard, I suppose there might be a patient someday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Moore, for joining us and sharing your wealth of information with us. Yeah,
2: thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to all those in the field that bring patients to us. We greatly appreciate your expertise.